You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Open up to Luke chapter 13. That's page 712 on your, in that pew Bible. And if you're techie and want to use your phone or tablet, you'll use the YouVersion Bible app. Follow the instructions on the screen. Click Grace Lutheran Church. You'll go right to where we are this morning. Luke chapter 13 is what we're looking at today. And I'm going to be reading starting in verse 1. Let's hear our scripture for this morning. It reads, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Part of our fallibility as human beings is our tendency not to think before we speak. We all do it, right? You know, you're passionate about a subject of conversation that maybe isn't going the way you believe that it should, and you just feel compelled to say something, right? I mean, out of our desire to help, to fix the situation, we cannot stop ourselves from offering some unsolicited advice. In opening our mouths, what we seek to offer is well-meaning, it's good-natured, and usually respectable. Typically, the words we use in those kind of situations are words we've heard before. I mean, we all have our catchphrases, don't we? We all have our go-to pearls of wisdom that we like to throw out there. And these are words because they've been repeated so often, it adds to their credibility for us, right? And as well as their universal application. I mean, everybody knows this. Because we're just passing along what we've heard before, we don't stop. We don't ever stop and question the authenticity or the validity of what we're saying. And this is how well-intentioned words become what we call platitudes or cliches. And as Christians, we tend to do this a lot. In the spirit of evangelism, sharing our faith, we want to to give someone else our Jesus jargon, right? Quoting it to another person or posting it on Facebook, that's really popular now. We want to give people a biblical soundbite from our Lord and Savior. In the midst of life's struggles, the brokenness of this world, we look to make a difference. We want to make things better by sharing a nugget of wisdom and perspective from the scriptures. The problem is, Much of what we say in the name of Jesus, Christ never said in the first place. Currently, if you're new with us, we're in the midst of a sermon series called Jesus Never Said That. That's why I'm wearing the shirt. There you go. We're we're in this sermon series, Jesus Never Said That, in an attempt to remedy this problem. We're taking popular statements associated with Christ and evaluating them, both in light of what Jesus actually said and how he walks before us. 
Because the thing is, when we hear, when we believe, when we tell others so-called divine truths that we can't specifically reference from the scriptures and have not carefully examined ourselves, we misrepresent Jesus. Despite our best intentions to provide insight and comfort, we end up causing more harm than good. I still remember, in fact, uh, several years, thankfully many, many years now, back when my dad was first diagnosed with prostate cancer. That was, uh, for my immediate family, the first time that we had ever been exposed to cancer or to kind of a situation like that. And in the thick of an uncertain and troubling time for me and my family, numerous, and I cannot underline that enough, numerous, well-meaning I want to emphasize that too. Well-meaning Christians who were a part of the community that I was serving at that time said to my face, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. But don't worry, everything happens for a reason. Man, that made me mad. In fact, uh, finally, one day just before, it was just before my dad was going to have his surgery, and uh, then if it was successful, begin radiation therapy, I, I couldn't contain myself when yet again another person started to assure me that everything happens for a reason. I just blurted out, um, you know, I'd love to know what you think that reason is. Uh, excuse me? The bewildered person said, I'd really like to know why you think the reason is my father has cancer. Needless to say, the conversation ended quickly. The other person apologized and promised to keep praying for me and my family. Everything happens for a reason. That little pinch of perspective gets tossed around all the time. We've all heard it said. Maybe we've said it ourselves. Everything happens for a reason. What's funny about this one, this, this is the phrase we're focusing on today. This particular statement that we throw out there, we actually throw it out there. We say it to ourselves to account for something trivial, right? Like not being able to find an open parking space. Oh, well, everything happens for a reason. Or accidentally losing our car keys. Well, everything happens for a reason. And then oddly, ironically, we also throw out the exact same phrase. We offer it up to try to resolve the tragic suffering of another person. When another person shares something devastating and tragic, you know, you don't, you don't remember these kind of moments? Someone just puts something out, something devastating that's going on in their life, and suddenly the conversation becomes awkward, right? Because there's nothing to say. Somebody tries to cut the tension, fill the silence, ease the pain by throwing out this supposedly helpful insight. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Jesus never said that. Jesus never said that. Now, to be clear, before we go on, just to, to be honest, in one sense, everything does happen for a reason. Nothing, I mean, just happens is what I'm saying. I mean, everything has a cause. I mean, if we're going to get technical about it, go back to school, I'm referring to Newton's third law of motion. And if you don't remember Newton's third law of motion, that's okay. It's this, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. In other words, for every movement of energy, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, there's a corresponding effect. We live in a world of cause and effect. Actions create consequences. Everything happens because something caused it to happen. But when we incorrectly quote Jesus as saying everything happens for a reason, we're not referring to the law of cause and effect. As Christians, when we say this, 
we mean God has a reason for bringing about the hardship this person is facing. That God caused, or at least allowed, the suffering this person is facing. And thus, there's a reason for it. Other ways of saying everything happens for a reason, other variations on this phrase include, it was God's will. It was meant to be. It must have been their time. It was part of God's plan. And the implied rationale behind all of these variations on the same theme is God has his reasons. The Lord wouldn't just cause stuff to happen for no reason. Therefore, we should trust God even though we don't know what that reason is. But again, Jesus never said that. Here, in this odd brief exchange in the Gospel of Luke, probably not a scripture you've read very often, we hear Jesus, in fact, say the exact opposite of that statement. Now, before I kind of unpack that for you, there's, because this is referring to things that we don't read about elsewhere in Scripture, some brief historical context is in order. He's, Jesus talks about some events that you don't read about anywhere else in Scripture. So let me just unpack it real quick. Jesus makes this comment. He gets asked about the blood of the Galileans. And that whole question and answer is referring to the current political unrest in Israel during Jesus' time under Pontius Pilate's rule. You see, on more than one occasion, history tells us there were ugly confrontations between soldiers and local Jews, Samaritans, and other people of Galilee who were all living under Roman occupation. These uprisings often led to the death of many people. So when Jesus talks about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, he's most likely referring to this ongoing political situation. As for Jesus' next statement, it's interesting, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is there any mention of the Tower of Salome, let alone its collapse. However, if you remember the scriptures, however, we do have reference to the Pool of Siloam, that ritual bathing pool, I don't know if you remember this story, on the south side of Jerusalem, that bathing pool where Jesus once restored sight to a blind man in the Gospel of John. So no reference to a tower in the Bible, but definitely to the pool. So scholars believe at some point, Prior to this gospel story, a tower in the city wall near those pools collapsed and killed 18 people. The point is, okay, Jesus is mentioning local events anyone hearing him at the time would have known all about. And he's rhetorically asking questions. He's asking them if there's a divine cause to be attributed to these two events. I don't know if you were paying attention, but his answer in both cases is telling Notice, Jesus does not say, you know those Galileans, it must have been their time. Jesus doesn't say in reference to the tower of Siloam that fell, you know God must have needed 18 more angels. No, Jesus' response is not everything happens for a reason owing to God's will. When people die by the sword or by accident, by natural disasters, deadly diseases, or bad decisions, Jesus denies God is the cause of their suffering. So right from the outset we see, saying everything happens for a reason, the way we mean it is wrong. Jesus never said that. But I want to go further with you to show you not only that everything happens for a reason is not only wrong, Jesus never said that, but it's also saying it, repeating it is problematic. It's problematic. Why? Well, here it is. When we say everything happens for a reason, not only is it wrong, it's problematic, because saying that makes God responsible for everything and therefore leaves humanity responsible for nothing. 
When we say everything happens for a reason is because God orchestrated it for a reason, we're declaring that everything that happens is the Lord's will. Now, in one sense, this doesn't sound so bad, right? I mean, we talk, as people of faith, we talk about the providence of God. And the providence of God is that we're talking about how we rely on the Lord to provide, to oversee the universe. We talk also about the sovereignty of God. And when we speak about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about this idea that the Lord is the highest authority, ruling over all creation. So when we think about, we talk about the providence and the sovereignty of God, well, this kind of makes sense. If God is sovereign, if God's providence is actual, then of course God must be behind everything that happens. Nothing happens in spite of God's will, but because of it, right? Now, this makes perfect sense, like I said, when the outcomes are good. When the outcomes are good, perfect sense. But when everything falls apart, when we try to apply this logic to bad or tragic situations, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. It, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't think right. We don't find it in Scripture. It, it blows up. Why? Why does this not hold up? Because here's the thing. God openly and explicitly declares himself to be against evil, injustice, suffering, and death. God doesn't say, oh, it's all part of my plan. God says no to evil. God says no to suffering. God says no to injustice. God says no to death. Repeatedly in the scriptures, the Lord speaks out against cruelty, exploitation, and murder. He doesn't go, oh, that's all part of my plan. God repeatedly laments the mistreatment and suffering of others. And that means... Guys, sexual harassment and abuse, racial and ethnic discrimination, homelessness, cancer, AIDS, rogue shooters, suicide bombers, tsunamis, flash floods, add to it. God has none of this as a part of his plan. None of this is the Lord's plan. In fact, if you read the story, if you read the book that we're supposedly quoting from, it's in answer to the horrors of violence and war. It's in answer to the ravages of disaster, disease, and death that the Lord promises a day when there will be no more crying, no more pain or death, a world of peace and everlasting life. Yes, God is sovereign. His providence is in our lives is real. Don't, mis don't mishear me. God is sovereign. His providence in our lives is real. But we do not worship a puppet master. Created in the image of God, you and I, us, we together, created in the image of God, we have been given a measure of control over our lives. We talked about this last week. We have been given stewardship over all of the Lord's creation. We each have a will. You have it, I have it, we each have a will we can exercise in concert with our creator's designs and purposes or against them. God gives us such agency as a gift out of his desire not to micromanage or just pull our strings, but to be in loving relationship with us. The Lord inspires us, the Lord guides us, the Lord corrects us, but our response matters. Think about it this way. Again and again we see in the scriptures, again and again we see in the scriptures our Heavenly Father's call for obedience. Our Heavenly Father's call for obedience means nothing if there's no possibility of making a wrong choice, of disobedience. Let's take it a little bit further. If every time something doesn't go as planned or ends up horribly wrong, we just casually shrug our shoulders and claim whatever happened was simply God's will, 
we essentially are passing the buck on any sort of personal responsibility we have for our choices and actions. Everything happens for a reason as our default go-to response enables us to avoid the honest and necessary work of self-reflection. It relieves us from stepping back and considering, finding out and admitting how our decisions and actions may have led to the consequences we are facing. If I take the posture, whatever I do must be God's will, God must have needed or wanted me to do it, otherwise the Lord would have intervened, then it becomes impossible for me to fail, right? Even my failures are somehow intended by God. If I cheat on my spouse, I didn't actually do anything wrong because it must have been part of God's plan. A drunk driver or a suicide bomber was merely an instrument of the Lord used to continue his plan, right? If it all happens for a divine reason, then nothing is ever my fault. We're relieved from taking responsibility for our decisions, for looking for solutions to problems, and for making better choices in the future. And maybe that's why we keep saying this. Maybe that's why everything happens for a reason is so popular for us. Because it requires no spiritual effort. It gives us an excuse not to engage our relationship with the Lord. Well, everything happens for a reason. It allows people to remain ignorant of God's will for their life and to just believe and do whatever because everything happens for a reason. It validates our indifference or worse, it validates our fatalism towards the world. Well, it's all, well, stuff happens, man, you know, sucks. Everything happens for a reason. Our first ancestors chose to disobey. They chose to work against the grain of the Lord's will for their lives and for this world. And as you remember, it caused a lot of problems and obstacles for them. They became, we might say, their own worst enemy. And like them, we often make the same decision. Some things that happen have to do with our own foolishness and poor choices. I hit that car in front of me because I was texting while I was driving. I don't have any money because I spent all of it. Our own decisions produce many of the results we experience. And that's why throughout the scriptures, God frequently makes reference to what caused things to happen to us. Because you obeyed, because you rejected, because of your unbelief, because of your faith, because you walked with me, because you didn't. Some things that happen in our lives and in our world have to do with our own individual foolishness and poor decisions. But I wanna be really clear here as I go further, very, very clear, really important if you're not paying attention to me that you do now. I wanna be clear that not everything that happens to us is a result of our own choices and actions. Not everything that happens to us is a result of our own choices and actions. Some things that happen, pain, Heartache, grief, loss, disease, and death are a byproduct of human sin because we live in a broken world, a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. We've been dealing with the consequences of Adam and Eve's choice even as we repeat it ourselves pretty much nearly every day of our lives. Here's the thing, and, and we don't think about this. We don't really sit in this enough. When we turn aside and take detours, when we're resistant and rebellious in our relationship with God like they were, these individual choices affect the collective whole of humanity. 
Our lives are connected and our decisions impact each other. Viruses spread, violence erupts, injustice oppresses, addictions cripple families, communities and nations like terrible ripples in a pond because of human choices and actions. They may not be your choices, they may not be your actions, but they're the choices and actions of someone else. We're connected. The Bible teaches us that this is the kind of world we live in. And in his own way, Jesus here acknowledges this, right? We live in a fallen world where bad things happen, where more often than we care to admit, the gift of our lives is fragile, that our lives come to their end, or at least encounter all kinds of struggle and sadness and disappointment along the way, without warning, without notice, without preparation, and without a whole lot of apparent mercy too much of the time. And even though he's Jesus here, he doesn't try to explain it, he doesn't try to rationalize it, he doesn't try to pretend we can avoid it. What Jesus does is hold up this broken world, this universe longing for its redemption before our eyes and invites us to experience a different kind of life. What we've been talking about these many, many months and years together, the kingdom of God breaking into this world, reconciling all creation, transforming everything in it, including us, Jesus twice in this brief encounter calls us to repent. Repent. Turn around. Turn around from blaming everything on God. Turn around from taking no responsibility for ourselves. Turn around and embrace the gospel, the good news that while God isn't responsible for all that's wrong in our lives and in this world, God willingly, lovingly, and ultimately takes responsibility for it. Hear that again. While God is not responsible for all that's wrong in our lives and in this world, God willingly, lovingly, and ultimately takes responsibility for it. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus, as God come down, reveals to us. That we look to the God who shows up in the flesh. That we look to the God who goes to the cross. That we look to the God who comes through the tomb that we look to the God who refuses to pretend this life of faith, this work of salvation is always easy, always kind, or fair every step of the way, but yet still walks with us through our darkest valleys. We look to this God who doesn't deny evil, sin, and injustice exist, but instead faces them head on and crucifies them all through his own innocent and willing sacrifice. We look to this God who never ignores that death will come, but embraces it in order to carry us beyond its grasp. We look to this God in Christ who saves us from every other reason that things happen, who saves us from every other reason beyond his loving desire for the best for us. We look to this God in Christ who intervenes in the midst of all of our brokenness, who doesn't abandon us to fate, but tirelessly works to rescue, heal, restore, and transform our lives and this world into all it was meant to be. We look to this God in Christ who gives us hope in spite of what scares us the most, in spite of tragedy, sickness, disease, and loss, hope that does not disappoint, hope that is not in vain, hope that works through all things, come what may for good. Our brother, the Apostle Paul, puts it this way in Romans 8, 28. He writes, And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Hold on. 
I wanted to quote Paul intentionally in this sermon because if you've heard this verse before, maybe it's your life verse. If we're not careful here, depending on how we translate what Paul just said, this is the verse we might point to in the Bible and go, you see, Paul just said everything happens for a reason. Wrong. Part of the proper translation of this scripture, ironically, rests in one little preposition in two tiny letters, in, in. Paul writes, let me read it to you one more time, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Paul writes God is working in all things. There's a mountain of difference between declaring that and saying all things work together for our good. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't write here, no matter what happens, it was part of God's plan. Paul doesn't write, no matter what happens, there's a greater reason for it. No, Paul writing from experience, and remember who Paul was, remember his life, remember encountering Christ at work in his own life, what he went through. Paul in the midst of his own storms, his own shipwrecks, his own struggles and suffering, testifies, no matter what happens, good or bad, explainable or unexplainable, God is present and at work in them. Even in the throes of the most devastating situations, the Lord is pouring out his love and grace and seeking to bring good out of the tragedy, not because of it, not good because of the tragedy, good out of the tragedy. Now, sometimes when Paul, Paul has a habit of saying a lot of stuff, right? And some, I mean, I'm, I'm confessing sometimes I'm cynical, sometimes I'm like, Paul, must be nice. You live in this rarefied air. I think some, Paul sometimes like looks at the world with rose-colored glasses, or you might say, you know, cross-colored glasses. And I and I, I read this and I think, how does Paul know? How I mean, how can we know that what he's declaring here is even possible? That that God can bring good out of tragedy. That no matter what happens, good or bad, that we can know that God is working and that God can actually bring good out of it. How does Paul know that? How can we know that? And here it is, because of the cross and the resurrection. That's why the cross sits at the centerpiece of any place that we worship. That's why the resurrection is foundational to what we believe, to what brings us together. Because of the cross and the resurrection, we believe, we know God can bring life even from death. And we know that God has, and we believe that God will again and again and again. Now, again, where does Paul look to to see this reality? I mean, Christ had ascended long before Paul was converted. Yeah, he had a vision of Jesus, but where does Paul look to see this reality of God bringing good out of horrible things that happen? Where can we look? We're 2,000 years removed. Where can we look to see that God can bring good out of the bad things that happen in our lives? And here's the thing. Paul looks to, and we can see the gospel is most certainly true through the witness of the body of Christ, the church. That's why we exist, people. That's why we're here and I don't just mean here metaphysically, this time, this place. I mean here we exist as, as, a, as an, an organism, as an organization. Because Jesus, through the authority and power of the Holy Spirit, has planted a community of faith, a people reborn through grace, followers of him who reflect his risen and living presence by speaking and acting as salt and light within this broken world. You know, in this series of Jesus Never Said That, I have intentionally taken on other little things that we like to say and pushed us. And man, you get in Christian community, and one of the big questions we all want to ask, we all want to let everybody know is, we, we made a decision for Christ. 
Did you make a decision for Christ? Oh, I made my decision for Christ. Did you make your decision for Christ? And guys, hear me. It's not just our decision for Christ that matters. And what I mean by that is we're all about when did you make that decision? What day, what time, where were you? It's not just our decision for Christ that matters. It is our ongoing, daily, and repeated response to Jesus through our engagement with others that is paramount. We can say we believe in Jesus all we want. Good for you, you believe in Jesus. Lots of people believe in Jesus. The devil believes in Jesus. We can say we believe in Jesus all we want, but it is only through the grace of Jesus that we either remain part of the problem or we become, through the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, part of the solution. We don't exist to simply say, we believe in Jesus. We exist. We are here to say and to show we follow Jesus. We live like Jesus. We reflect Christ to a world that says we can't see him. He's not real. He's not risen. He didn't, he's not still living. What we say and do in the name of Jesus is to orient, it's to reassure, it's to remind everyone that the ultimate will of God is not for our loss, it's not for our suffering, it's not for our devastation and destruction. No, we are to orient, we are to assure and remind everyone that the ultimate will of God is love and wholeness for all people. That the Lord is not the cause, but that the Lord is the answer to all of our suffering. That through Christ there will be an end to our troubles. That's our message. That's our witness. That's what the world needs to hear, longs to hear. Now, brass tacks. How, what does that look like? How, how, does, how, do, how then should we, how do we do that? How do we live that out? How should we respond? Let's just put it out there. How should we respond then before the brokenness of this world? How do we respond? Let's make it more intimate when we're confronted by the unimaginable grief, pain, loss, heartache, despair of another person. What does that look like? First, and I think we can all agree here, stop saying everything happens for a reason. Never say that again. It's not accurate. It doesn't help. It may make you feel better. And honestly, that's what it's all about, making you feel better. It may make you feel better, but it leaves the other person feeling worse, more confused, more frustrated, and more hurt. Here's the, if you missed this, if you haven't caught this for the whole time I've been talking, understand tragic loss is not laced with inherent specks of good. There isn't always good to be found in every circumstance. We can't always make sense of every situation. The good that God seeks, the good that the Lord desires to bring out of a terrible circumstance begins to be realized not by you or me having any or all of the answers. The good that God seeks, desires to bring out of any terrible circumstance begins to be realized by being present for the other person. Being present for the other person, instead of saying everything happens for a reason or expressing any other kind of well-intentioned but incorrect rationale for another person's hurt, offer them your presence. Be willing to just sit silently in the darkness of the valley where they find themselves. Hold their hand, make them dinner, wash their dishes, drive them where they need to go. Don't impose yourself upon them, offer them your company. Just be there for them without feeling like you have to say something. Now, I know for some of us that's just not going to be possible, right? 
I gotta say something. I got, I got, I just, you don't, I have to, have to say something. And all kidding aside, the person may ask you to say something. And I would always recommend let, let they, them give you the cue to speak. So if you have to say something, if they ask you, if silence isn't an option, what should you say? You know, I've, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. I've, I think back to when, like I said, my dad was first diagnosed and, and again, and I, and I recognize, I really want you to hear this in my frustration. The people that came up to me, the people that talked to me, they were well-meaning. They were trying to love on me. And I stepped back and I said, you know, I can get really mad about what I don't want them to say, right? But what would I, what, what do I, what would I want them to say? What do I want them to say? And I'm not dictating this to you. I'm just, in my own thoughts, if silence isn't an option, if you have to say something, here's, here's what I would say. I know this is a difficult time for you, but you're not alone. I'm here for you. I'm here for you without judgment or reservation, however you need me to be. I'm here for you because Jesus is here with you. Jesus is here with you no matter what, and therefore so am I. I wish someone had said that to me. That would have meant something to me. That would have ministered to me. And the thing is, and this again just testifies to the grace of our God, is even though no one that I can remember said anything like that to me at that time, God said that to me. The Holy Spirit put that on my heart. Guys, the thing is, what I just said, what I just, just not even just the saying, but the being present, saying that, living like that, means we have to let go of extending theologically lacking platitudes that allow us to get on with our lives, right? To get back to our business, our schedule, and our agenda. Saying that, living like that, means that we're willing to follow Jesus, not just believe in him, but follow him and pick up our cross and carry it, willingly giving up our life for the life of another person. That's grace actualized, man. I mean, that's the stuff. That's the seed of redemption, of goodness out of evil, being planted in the soil of this broken world. But doing that, being like that, that's irrational. That's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense in our fast-paced and self-consumed society. But friends, this is what God has proven gives life. God in Christ has proven that it's in the giving up of life that new life becomes possible. It's in the sacrificing of self-appreciation that offering life to others is possible. The eternal will of God is not for people to suffer. It's not for them to hurt. It's not for them to wallow in the pain of grief and loss. But it's for all. The eternal will of God is for all to share in the great joy of an empty tomb that offers new life and promises the triumph of God's love for everyone. Everything happens for a reason. We tell ourselves that. Especially when bad things happen. We want to believe. We want to convince others, if not ourselves. It's all for a greater purpose. It's all part of God's plan. But Jesus never said that. While we live in a world of cause and effect, not everything that happens is because God willed it or wanted it. The Lord is in control of all things. Don't misunderstand me. The Lord is in control of all things. Out of that ultimate control, God gives us the freedom to choose and the will to act or not in relationship with him. 
The Lord doesn't cause everything that happens in our lives and in our world, especially what is bad. Bad things often happen because of the choices we make. However, bad things also happen because we live in a broken and sinful world where we are all connected, where the decisions of others affect us just as our decisions affect them. But here's the gospel, here's the good news. No matter what circumstance we are in, heartache, sorrow, illness, or loss, God is with us. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus said in word and deed. No matter how we got to where we are, whether we've become victim to a failing mind or body, whether we're the recipient of someone else's bad decisions, whether we happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or whether it's because of our own boneheaded choices, Christ is with you. And regardless of what the outcome will be, Christ is not only with you, he is for you. That's the good news, that ultimately our eternal tomorrow is not shaped solely by human hands and hearts. The good news is the spirit of the living God continues to work through the weaved threads of tragedy, brokenness, and suffering and loss born of human will. And in the midst of everything, the spirit of the living God continues to work to redeem our lives and this world, to take all that is evil, all that is ugly, all that is awful, all that we face and endure, and to make something beautiful and everlasting come out of it. Thank God for that.